The Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me, as ever, is the professor, Alan Jameson. How, mate? Good evening, Tom. Good evening. Um, start us off with the soundtrack. What's been playing in your head? Absolutely nothing. Just complete and utter silence. It's been such a horrific two or three weeks, so I'm void <laughs> of all joy. Uh, it's so, just white noise. Yeah, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, so I'm going to throw one that back at you. What have you been listening to? Oh. Well, as may be revealed later, I have recently discovered We Build Spaceships. Oh, that sounds like a curious link to something coming up in the show. <laughs> well, it, it was an unusual place where I discovered this, uh, yeah, this music. So, um, yeah, we'll find out where that comes from later. Apologies first for the uh, COVID-riddled last episode. It was a bit tough. <laughs> it was tough to record and it was tough to edit. Uh, so thanks for hanging in there. And I'm very sorry if that was your first ever episode was me like groaning into a microphone and then not having the energy to do a very good job at editing. But uh, thanks for hanging in there. I couldn't tell the difference, Tom. That, I don't know how to take that. That might be good. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that one just floating around. But yeah, I must admit, I thought my audio was terrible in the last one. There was, was uh, You were out in your cupboard. You were out in the real I? world. And yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I think that was in your living room. Yeah. You just need to go back into your scolding little fort. Yes, the problem I've got at the moment is I'm living in a in a self-made man cave fort uh, behind my sofa because of this COVID in the house, uh, and I'm supposed to fly to Japan on Monday morning, so I'm desperately trying not to. It's over now, actually, to be fair. It's, it's, I'm allowed out again, but I have been squatting in my own house. This feels like alien isolation. It feels like COVID is actually like a seven-foot-tall beast, and you're hiding behind the sofa as it prowls around the house looking for you. Yeah. <laughs> looking for the uninfected it's funny it's funny like when someone has covid you don't even want to look them in the eye just in case in case the eye beams carry up <laughs> yeah, just like get back, get back into your dungeon don't come out unclean unclean yeah, yeah. yeah. bring back leper colonies i say yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> While I'm moaning about editing, just a reminder that we have started releasing our pressurized version of these episodes. Uh, so if you don't have enough time for an hour and 20 minutes of us rambling on, then we just whip out the best bits in a 15 to 20 minute long version of the episodes. So following each major episode, there'll be the condensed version of them. But we're also going to dive back into the archive a little bit. So you'll start to see some of the classic episodes from the early days uh, condensed down. So if you don't want to dive right the way back in our feed, uh, there's going to be short, punchy versions of those episodes appearing sort of every month. Maybe one, one from the archive every month and one short version. Have we been doing this long enough? We have classics. That two makes years. Me, makes you feel old. <laughs> Classic episodes. Oh, remember the old microphones? <laughs> remember, we didn't have a microphone to start with. There's some good echoey ones. Or oh, we should revisit the vegan potato harvester. You know, that should make the cut. That should make the 15 minutes of like hard-hitting science content like 25 hours of rambling that's it <laughs> that's my go-to vegan potato harvesters <laughs> or show me the tommy knocker that was one of the most obscure ones but weirdly i for the life of me i cannot remember the context of why i was showing show me the tommy knocker it was the monster episode it was the the one oh, okay. with tyler it was the cryptozoology one Spe speaking of tyler have you seen that he's been in the news <laughs> he has. I reached out to him to uh, see if he wanted to make a comment, and he did get in touch with the journalist. And he said, depending on how that goes, he may make a statement through the Deep Sea Podcast. So, <laughs> do you want yeah. to tell the story? It was great. Well, the backstory here is, is Tyler's a what? How would you 
how would you describe he's a, a paleontologist and cryptozoologist but an activist for the truth right so he yeah, goes out to yeah, try and stop better. all this ridiculous sort of cryptozoology type of stuff or at least put some he science hates misreporting. behind it yeah. he hates like sloppy reporting through a weird set of circumstances he ended up as part of a major story about how the Loch Ness monster in Scotland might be a frog or a toad a or big frog big big frog <laughs> <laughs> and the poor guy has been like his whole life is dedicated this. to killing this sort of crap reporting. It's almost as if he's upset somebody and they thought the only way to truly get back at a guy like Tyler is to put him in the centre of a of a monster theory or something. You know, it was just, I don't know. I felt for the guy, but at the same time, I thought it was hilarious. If I were him, I'd get that printed off and above your mantelpiece. This giant frog haunts Scottish lock. <laughs> I'll put a link to his blog because his blog is fantastic. It's really well researched. And yeah, he's, he's talking about the validity of the Loch Ness Monster in one of his blogs. And as an example of there are things living at the bottom of the loch, far deeper than you'd expect. You don't expect like a, a pond frog, the same species you see in your pond, to be down over 200 metres, but it turns out they do. Um, so he just used that as an example of there are things that live at the bottom of the loch. It's not totally devoid of life, but taken out of context, yeah. Loch Ness Monster might just be a big frog, according to, and his name's right up there in the like I the headline. I was just chuckling. <laughs> honestly, I was I was sort of chuckling to myself when I saw that. I thought of all the people to get embroiled right right dead center of a story like that. It's the guy who's like dedicated his life to stopping those stories. So very funny, poor guy. I'll get an update from him. I'll see what the journalist said. Yeah. But speaking of news, there was another one. Did you see the one about the ugliest thing fisherman has ever seen? Is it some poor thing that's been horribly decompressed? No. Oh, no, 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 no. This, you're going to love this. This is in, uh, in Newsweek. The headline was, Mystery deep sea creature dubbed ugliest thing fishermen have ever seen. And basically, this Australian fisherman has found something, right? And this whole article goes on about how it's awful and it's really, really disgusting and it's ugly and he doesn't know what it is. It should be banned. Something must be done. It says, it appears a mottled pink grey like something out of Stranger Things upside down and its eyes bulge out the side of its head and its huge mouth, which takes up most of its face, contains rows of sharp teeth. And the fish can be seen to still have bait fish inside its mouth. I mean, it's just the whole thing. And then another friend of the podcast, Mr. James McLean. After spitting out his tea. <laughs> he, does, he does a vecchione on it. And uh, after you get through all this rubbish, James is there just going, it's not a blobfish, it's a monkfish. Was it this fisherman's first day? They're gnarly looking fish, but... But they're fished. No fisherman should be surprised by the existence of a monkfish. <laughs> yeah, and you look at the picture and it looks a lot like a monkfish, but obviously this guy has never seen one before. It's amazing. It's just it's just another one of those articles where it's just all talking about the flabby nose drooping over their mouth and all these ridiculous descriptions of this thing. And then we get right to the very end, and this is a direct quote... According to James McLean, senior fish curator at London's Natural History Museum, it is, quote, definitely not a blobfish, unquote. <laughs> that looks to be very much like a monkfish, also known as an anglerfish, from the family Lafoidae, he told Newsweek. In fact, I'd bet money on it because I'm pretty sure I can see the lure it uses to catch bait just between the eyes. <laughs> End of story. And that's it. Well done, James, for doing a, doing a mic. <laughs> well done, James. There was a, a soft creaking on the line while he was speaking, which was his fist gripping the receiver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is this is where scampi comes from. This, you can yes. you can buy this fish at the pub. 
You can buy it. You can buy it at your local yeah. fishmongers. It's not weird in the slightest, is it? Well, not not weird in the true sense. It's a it's a really adapted, gnarly looking fish. I must admit, I'm I'm not a fan of monkfish uh, to eat or just the concept of them. When we've done jobs in the North Sea or the, of Rockall, North Atlantic on Scotia, we used to sort of get invited on there to do whatever we're going to do. But in return for the for the berth, we used to have to help process the trawl. And you'd be in this like fish house in the in the ship somewhere, and the hopper would open up, and a couple of tons of fish would come down the hopper, and suddenly it's like all hands on deck and you've got to sort the fish into the species and all the rest of it and then amongst a big pile of like whatever fish it might be every and again there's basically a fishy bear trap <laughs> sitting underneath it which is very much alive even from a thousand meters and that's the monkfish it's just got one big huge head and it, yeah it snaps at you so i had some beef with monkfish i'm telling you because <laughs> it's really reflexive that jaw snapping so they they have a habit of net feeding as well so even when they're like fighting for their lives they can't they can't help but eat all the other fish in the net Mm. so quite often you'll pull them up and they'll they'll have their jaws open almost threatening you and then at the back of their throat you can see the tail of a mackerel (laughs) sort of disappearing um so yeah they're pretty intense saying that you can get them in a fishmongers and they do scare people i think it was one of the brummy fishmongers what he would do is he'd tie a little bit of fishing line to the lure which Uh is at the the front of the upper lip so of course any kid runs into that fishmongers and they're drawn immediately to the monkfish and they're like oh look at this look at this and then the fishmonger would just pull that and the mouth would open nice (laughs) so a whole generation were just traumatized by this bored fishmonger in birmingham nice uh, do you have any more newsy stories? Or the only one I saw that which was interesting was uh, discovering why deep sea corals glow in the dark. Well, yeah, it's a b- bunch of scientists from Tel Aviv University are saying it's uh, a lot of these corals give off fluorescence, so they, they use the downwelling light to excite pigments and give off these beautiful displays. And no one was really quite sure what they were for, but they reckon it's to attract in plankton, signalling their prey. And they did some uh, some quite cool lab experiments, didn't they? There's like colour and pattern preferences to little prey invertebrates. There's certain colours that attracted them more, like the yeah. orange morphs attracted them better than the, the yellow morphs. Really weird. But weirdly, having read the whole article, I'm, I'm still not getting where the deep sea bit comes into it. Uh, it sounds like it's 45 metres. Oh, I think they they te- they experimented with uh, with those because they, they, quite a few of them fluoresce. And then they applied that lab-based stuff to the deep sea ones. But yeah, they've not observed it directly. Still a theory right now, but interesting. The fluorescent stuff is cool. We should ask someone about that later. We should. We should. Yeah. Oh, wonder who that could be. I don't know. I'm quite enjoying the sort of paleo stuff. I'm quite enjoying the like looking back in Earth's history. Uh, so the deep Atlantic was once as warm as the Mediterranean. It was 20 degrees mm. 50 million years ago. And so ancient temperatures were reconstructed from the stable isotope ratios of basically tiny critter shells in the deep sea muds. So coccolithophores, things like that. You get a nice deep three meter sample of deep sea mud and it's essentially a going back in time, basically. So that's going to help us understand, again, elevated CO2 and the the impact on our planet. You know, all these mechanisms have existed in the past. But uh, yeah, 20 degrees, like in all of the Atlantic. That's mad, isn't it? It's hard to picture that. Yeah, I've been having some ponderings for like deep sea colonization. What would that have been like? Would that would it have been easier or was this an anoxic period? Because you know how we were talking about in the deep sea and in the med, warm water might make it easier for things to go deeper, but they still need oxygen and food. And Yeah, there are other 
other factors at the play as factors. well. But, <laughs> but generally speaking, a warmer deep sea should allow things to go deeper. In that purely physiological yeah. sense. But the yeah, yeah w- whether there's a life for them down there is another thing. Um, there was some nice footage from Embari. Another nice example of, you know, the more eyes in the sea capturing things, the more things you see. And I feel like this might be old footage that they've just re-released this month or they've shared on YouTube for the first time this month because it seemed it seemed the, the papers went back to, to 2021. But anyway, at about 1,400 metres down, so 4,500 feet off the California coast, um, they saw a squid brooding her eggs. Ooh. And it's unusual for squid to brood eggs. They tend to either release them as, as floating mats or to, to plant them somewhere. But there are some examples. And interestingly, all the examples of squid brooding their eggs are uh, deep sea. So it's obviously a, a viable strategy when you're reproducing in the deep sea. There you go. Good solid squid story there. So the species was Bathytoothus berryi, and uh, there's some nice papers on it. So I'll put those in the show notes if you want to read more. So there was a new brine pool discovered in the Red yes, Sea. Yes, I saw that. Guys, the the guys at Ocean X, yeah. Yeah. Gulf of Aquaba, A-Q-A-B-A. Apologies if I'm... I'm butchering that but yeah the the small inlet to the north of the, uh, the red sea it's like the main pool is huge did i thought this was a typo at first but 10 square kilometers and then with three minor pools around it really they are getting quite big the one the one we dove on on Suakin was quite big can't remember what size it was the brain pools are awesome though but you know we were never quite sure what to do with that data because myself and Aaron victor dove on the kebrit brain pool a couple of years back just before covid and it was beautiful absolutely stunning but scientifically it's it's, it's hard to know what to do with that because it was so unbelievably void of life uh there's obviously a hell of a lot of chemistry and geology going on there but you can't really do anything if it's just video so it was beautiful to see though the way that sort of fake surface i mean it's like, it feels like there's a haze almost like a sort of smoky sleepy hollow type of i think of all the things i've done in my entire life that that's definitely one that sticks out as being the most surreal it was like flying around on, a, on the set of star trek or something like that on a different planet it was bizarre but uh yeah i'm just not quite sure what to do with that well they're quite excited because they preserve um the sediment really well because of course they're yes. they're pretty abiotic so they reckon there's 1200 years of geological history beautifully preserved at the bottom of it in its sediments so it's quite a geology-based cruise but they seemed very excited about what they found that is a big thing to just stumble on yeah very very cool did you hear about the java sea off indonesia glowing back in 2019 glowing milky sea yeah that's an old one that the, the milky sea thing was good 15 years ago it happens fairly regularly was over it? that uh, there was, i remember it being a big area. a big story at the time because some new satellite had enough sensitivity to actually film it and you could see these big long bioluminescent waves in there across like a massive area i think it was off africa or somewhere like that it's in Indi- indian ocean i think but yeah Th- this one was uh was java off indonesia yeah so that it was that satellite that, that discovered it. it was more than a hundred thousand kilometers squared of the ocean was just glowing nice and the satellite observations were published last year and following the publication the crew of the yacht ganesha got in touch to say they were there and they Ooh. had photos like from the surface and they sort of did a little bit of citizen science and tried to sort of figure it out so it was a really nice like example of ground truthing of satellite data yeah. a little bit of citizen science and some like really wondrous things still being discovered and the last one i'm just i'm just keeping an eye on potential alien deep sea for, so Ooh. that we can branch out and keep deep seeing in other planets uh so the latest research indicates that saturn's moon enceladus may be a little less salty than earth's oceans but it's still another tick for being a contender for supporting life so uh, signs are still looking good still still might get some deep sea research on enceladus in the distant future 
Well, let's go. Yeah. Pack up hacks. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, I'm going to see you on Monday. Bye. Bye. <laughs> what are you doing? Are you allowed to talk about it? Uh, I don't know. I suppose so. We'll see why not. <laughs> uh, no, on Monday I am flying to Okinawa. And after my one-year hiatus on the pressure drop, I'm back as chief scientist again for the next five years. Starting with Japan. So we're going to dive on the Rukuyu Trench, Aizu Ogasawara Trench... Japan Trench, look at the Triple Junction, the deepest crinoid meadow at 9,000 metres, the deepest chemosynthetic site in the world. We're going to look for tracers in the cesium 137 from Fukushima. We're going to dive on the epicentre of the 2011 earthquake. It's going to be awesome. It's two months and two parts. I'm going to do the first month uh, with one of my colleagues, and then and then I'm going to swap over with those two. And the rest of the scientific part are all from Japan. So it's a really nice big international thing. Uh, it's going to be great. You've got, uh, you've got documentarians along as well, so hopefully that will be something that can be thoroughly shared down the line. Nah, I, I can't stand film crews. I really don't. I'm just not interested anymore. I just, they just do my nine. They will be making a documentary. Did you listen to Edie's interview? She had a similar life. Never again. Fine for them to be on board, but never led by documentarians again. <laughs> no, I think as a, as a general rule, I mean, we've been caught out a couple of times, but doc, documentary and TV crews, this is like a PSA for young scientists coming into the business. They'll do anything in their power to try and steer what you're doing scientifically, and you have to fight them every step of the way. To make a documentary, they're just there to document what you're doing. They're not there to tell you what to do. Individually, these are all really nice people, but culturally, it's it's hard when you've got a film crew on. I, I shall try and maintain some presence in next month's podcast, but I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that yet. Anyway, so all all this talk of fluorescence and bioluminescence and going from a whole episode on mesopelagic fish in the twilight zone and, and other bioluminescent oddities through Edie Widder and who followed on from Tracy's episodes, we should conclude this, don't you think, with a three-parter, a, three-parter, a story arc, a trilogy, you might say. We need to follow up with someone who knows about the eyes themselves and the brains and colour, which we don't think about colour very often when we talk about deep sea. Everything seems to be a bit grey and brown and looks a bit sad. Really. Colour's kind of an afterthought, but it's it's really not. There's nothing that fabulous in the deep sea. As a general rule, things tend to look a bit sad. It's like they haven't bothered to get dressed in the morning. But there are colour uh, phenomena out there, uh, so we should phone someone up who knows about that and interrogate them. And who are we going to chat to? I want to chat to Justin Marshall, who we've been to sea with. I've been to sea with him a couple of times. He's a really cool guy. He's recently sort of retired, but presumably not properly retired because no one does anymore. It's academic retired where you just work harder. Yeah. And so he's a English professor and he emigrated to Australia a long time ago. He's worked on, on a whole manner of things and has an absolutely fascinating career. Uh, there's no more point in me trying to explain it because I'll get him to explain it. So we should pick up the phone and give Justin a call. Right, so in the last few episodes, we've learned quite a lot about things like the mesopelagic or the deep pelagic and open water fishes from Tracy Sutton and the mesopelagic being the largest habitat on Earth. And then with Edie Widow, we were talking about bioluminescence, which is probably the most common form of communication on the planet. This answers the question of why deep sea animals still have eyes, because obviously there's a lot of biological light. But the final piece of the puzzle is vision in the deep sea. How are these animals using their eyes and in what way they're different from shallower eyes and why do deep sea animals need to see at all? So today we have Professor Justin Marshall, who I was going to say from University of Queensland, but I think you're now retired. So, Justin, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Oh, yeah, good. I mean, thanks. And I'm, I'm sort of retired, but um, 
believe it or not, I'm at a conference where I'm required to give a talk and a poster. So um, you can still say I'm at the University of Queensland um, and I'm in the Queensland Brain Institute. Many people don't believe there are brains in Queensland, but there's a few. And yeah, still happily studying fish and wondering why they have eyes. Excellent. So for the benefits of the audience, what is unusual about deep sea fish eyes, the adaptations and so on? I mean, we know that they're sort of tuned, they're adapted to see in the deep blue, but physiologically, what makes them different from, from the eyes of animals we're more familiar with? Uh, well, I mean, the answer to that is actually not much. They're, they're pretty much um, like fish eyes from the surface. They're pretty much like our eyes. Now, our eyes are called simple eyes because they have you know, one lens at the front and the lens focuses light onto the, the retina at the back. And we have this, you know, the cornea curvy bit you see at the front of our eyes and that um, focuses the light onto the lens that focuses the light onto the retina and makes our image nice and sharp. In the C, the cornea doesn't do anything because the cornea is sort of the same refractive index as water. So fish's lenses are a bit different. But, you know, whether it's a, a fish on the surface or a fish in the deep sea, they have these spherical round lenses uh, and they have a retina at the back. So really the answer to the question is not that much until you start thinking about it. Uh, and then there are things in the deep sea that you need to do that you don't need to do on the surface. And there's a lot of things on the surface that you don't need to, to do in the deep sea. To cut a long story short, there's quite a few eyes that have become more simple. And then there's weird eyes that sort of have divided into two and other eyes that have become more complicated. So they go in both yeah. directions. So the, the, the four-eyed fish, for example, the one that it looks like it's got four eyes, but it doesn't. It has two eyes and it has two other eyes, but the the second pair, if you like, are actually mirrors to deflect the, the light into the two real eyes. Is that something which is very specific deep sea, or has that evolved in any other animal? No, that, that's very deep sea-ish, um, and there's a whole bunch of those. Um, I've actually just had the pleasure of um, completing a paper with uh, Professor Ron Douglas and others on the, exactly this subject. So read all read all about it soon. Um, but, Excellent. But, yeah, God, you can't wait, I know. And, and the reason for that is that if you think about these fish in the mesopelagic, now you've talked to Edie and you've learned you know, a little bit about bioluminescence. And of course, uh, as we all know, as soon as you get below a thousand meters in the ocean, there's no light left from the surface. So it's all bioluminescence. But when you're in that mesopelagic realm, um, let's say 200 meters, there is light from the surface. And then as you sort of think about looking out to the side and looking down, it gets darker and darker. But there's still stuff there. There's still the bioluminescence. And lots of the deep sea fish at that level will have eyes that point upwards. So there's a famous fish called Apistoproctus, and the, the proctus gives you a, a bit of a clue as to what it's doing. Uh, but we'll talk about that later. Its main eye looks upwards, but then it has this, or its relatives have this series of adaptations that then allow the fish to look downwards too. Uh, it's almost as if it sort of forgot about that bit. So it designed most of its eye to look upwards, and then it went, oh, hang on, I do need to see stuff down too, because that might be a predator coming towards me and exciting some bioluminescence. So they sometimes add what looks like a complete eye that's looking downwards. It's a little called a diverticulum. And some of them have their own little lens and their own little retina. Um, and others have these sort of lens pad things that reflect or refract light into the eye, uh, allowing the fish to have this sort of vision downwards as well, while focusing on the light from above. So it kind of covers all angles, if you like. Yeah. So the thing that I was interested in, because I used to dabble in bioluminescence a little bit, back in the day when I was a young lad. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I know. 
the vertical component to that, of course, the downwelling light is one thing, but let's say you're completely beyond that. You're at 5,000 meters on the middle of an abyssal plain. Yeah. Something flashes. How far away are things seeing that? I mean, you know, because we keep talking about bioluminescence is used for communication and then everyone runs off a list of potential things that could be communicating, but how far is it emitting that, do you think, in, in sort of normal, crystal clear deep sea water? Oh, it's a good question. One of the things that a lot of people don't realise is that vision in the ocean is limited by water. Um, so yeah. no no animal in the ocean is going to see like we do, you know, 100, 200, 300 metres away, a kilometre away. You know, we can still spot things miles away because air doesn't attenuate light very much or not as much as water. Whereas water, even if it's very pure, um, will cut light down. And then as soon as you start adding stuff to it, like, you know, particles or um, sediment or dissolved organic matter, then it um, attenuates very quickly. So most action in the ocean, whether you're in the deep sea or in the surface, is over just a few metres. Is it as short as that, really? Yeah, just I mean, it's a surprise. That, you know, a lot of animals that live in the surface waters, especially, as I said, when you've got this organic matter in there, uh, their whole life yeah. is conducted within you know, possibly the space of the room which you're sitting in. I'm in a little soundproof booth, and that will be for very murky water. In the deep sea, the water does tend to be purer. It's quite clear. Um, so it can be you know, possibly up to... 100 meters that sort of thing um but that's that's a long way away for a little fish and that you know that might be an approaching whale the dory uh, in uh, finding nemo kind of thing you know is that a whale a long way away or is it a, a friend very close and it's quite yeah. difficult to judge distance in the, in the sea also especially in the deep you now you see a flash now was that a big flash a long way away or was that a little yeah. flash very close it's gone well, out now it doesn't necessarily have a shape or form right it could no, just be a, literally a, a flash of, or yeah. whatever so. Can, yeah imagine sitting in a dark room and someone has a torch and if they flash it and you go oh, it was over there wasn't it but it's gone out now and then it flashes somewhere else in the room and um, you're being stalked by someone in a dark room, which is a bit creepy, but that's what happens in the deep sea. These animals have to cope with these flashes from unknown distance and decide what to do. Yeah, it's a bit creepy, but we all do it. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about some of the stuff that's come out of your lab particularly. Mm -hmm. In 2017, you discovered a new type of eye cell in deep sea fish, this rod-like cone specialised for dimly lit environments. Can you tell us about that? No, I think not anyone can remember their biology back at school. You remember that the eye has these two types of photoreceptors, the rods and the cones. And in general, the, the rods are for dim light vision or vision when there's not much light around. The cones allow animals in general to have colour vision. So, you know, we've got three cones. We've got our red, green and blue. Hence, our whole world is RGB. In the deep sea, not that long ago, people thought, oh, all of these fish are just going to have rods, aren't they? Because, you know, rods see in the dim light and it's dim in the deep sea. So they're just going to have rods. And that's actually true for a lot of deep sea fish. Um, they do just have rods. But then, you know, we've found over the years that several of them have cones. And then you have to worry about the distinction between, you know, what is a cone and what is a rod? You know, cones were labelled as cones because they're sort of cone-shaped. And rods are labelled as rods because they're, you guessed it, rod-shaped. Um, but the distinction there is is breaking down. Um, a number of animals, including things like snakes, uh, have sort of re-evolved colour vision but using rods, not cones, and then other animals use cones for dim light vision. So it's become a bit of a, a mix and match situation. What we're finding increasingly in the deep sea is it's, it's not as simple as we thought it was. Yeah. So what about fluorescence? That's something I've been reading about today. Someone in someone in Tel Aviv University has just discovered that deep sea corals use fluorescence to attract plankton. 
Uh, and I read stuff a while back about some of these sort of more boring, sad-looking deep-sea fish may actually be giving off some sort of interesting display. Is, is that something you've worked on? It is. I've got a particular, I'm not sure what the polite word is for this, but a particular thing about fluorescence because you know, one of the things that we do as humans is we like flashy stuff and we like things that glow in the dark. So we wave UV lights around and we see things that fluoresce. You know, go to any nightclub and you've got people wearing fluorescent tattoos, all sorts of things fluoresce. You know, we actually use it in everyday life. So we use yeah. our post-it notes or the highlighter pen that you might highlight a bit of text with that has fluorescent dye in it. And it's a brighter than bright thing. It makes things stick out. And then as soon as you see an animal that fluoresces, you think, oh, that must be relevant to the animal. It's trying to stick out. It's trying to be more visible. Yeah. Except you need the light to excite it to fluoresce. And in the deep sea, there isn't much. You know, in the mesopelagic, when you're in the sort of blue zone, it turns out the blue is quite a good fluorescence exciter. And yeah, in that kind of zone, it's possible that the blue light that's remaining excites fluorescent coral. And, you know, I've seen this myself diving. You, you go to, let's say, even just 20 metres, you're scuba diving. And all scuba divers know that when you're at 20 metres, reds disappear because water filters out red first. So if you've got a red snorkel, it kind of looks muddy green or black. Uh, and you have to come back up to the surface waters to re-see your red snorkel. But then you see, oh, hang on, that's an orange coral I've just seen. And that's a coral that is using the blue light to fluoresce. So there's a chemical process within the coral, within one of its pigments, that pulls in the blue light. It pulls in the blue photons. And then the chemical re-emits photons in the red or the orange. And it's always in that direction. It's always from shorter wavelengths, yeah. the blues and the greens, to the oranges and the reds and stuff. And yeah, a number of corals, animals do this. But there is a whole bunch of stuff out there like you know, fluorescent wombats. All right, they're not deep sea, but they don't fluoresce. Lots of things fluoresce we, we, just because they We could they make do. them deep sea. Well, we could. We could take a wombat into the deep sea and see if it fluoresces. But um, it may not enjoy the experience. Uh, but no, there's, there's stuff out there that just fluoresces. I mean, your teeth fluoresce. Is that relevant? Probably not. You know, my fingernails fluoresce. All sorts of parts of human beings that fluoresce, which we can't talk about. But uh, I guess there's lots of these things that are... Uh, incidental. In, that's the incidental, word. Incidental. Wasn't it? We, we had, uh, several months ago, we had Marcel Jaspers on the show talking about biodiscovery and all these interesting biochemical compounds that deep-sea bacteria give off, and he found one in the Mariana Trench that reacts to infrared light. Yeah, not much infrared light why? <laughs> And you know, so that's the thing. Don't get too excited about things that glow in the dark because they may not glow in their natural habitat. But of course, there are some some really cool stories about light in the deep. Uh -huh. And it's almost certain that some of these jellyfish are using little fluorescent bits to attract possible prey. Same with coral. You know, corals very closely related to jellyfish, so they might do the same thing. You know, there's a good colleague of both of ours, you know, Mike Matz spent a long time looking at uh, things that glow in the dark and trying to untease this this problem of is it significant or is it just you know an epiphenomenon it's sometimes called it's incidental yeah huh wombats incidental but uh, wombats in the deep sea I'll, I'll pay for that there's two stories i think i associate with you that i, I think are, are, are actually there's a few but a lot of them we can't talk about <laughs> but uh, scientific stories there are you know, your career has been pretty damn impressive for all sorts of reasons but the two the next two i'm going to pick out the next two is one is not particularly deep sea, but what the hell, the mantis shrimp story, oh, yeah. right? The mantis shrimp can see in 12 color channels. Mm -hmm. I think that's phenomenal and how that sort of branched out into all sorts of different applications. I think possibly even the Blu-ray DVD. Yeah. Another one that sticks out is the color changing cephalopods are actually colorblind. 
Yeah. I think those two are, are stories which will go down in the, the great things about marine science. To use a, a nerdy science joke here, are you ready for this? They are at two ends of the spectrum. Well, hey. One's got 12 visual channels and the cephalopods only have one. So there's your two ends of the spectrum. Nice. Um, and yeah, they're pretty amazing in both respects. Just to cut out of this for a little bit, there are deep sea stomatopods, the bathy squilla, um, but they, huh. as you might expect, only have a single visual pigment. That's very sensible. Right. But it turns out they probably moved into the deep sea and lost the 12 visual pigments. That seems to be the direction that lots of evolution goes in. You know, things become more simple. Yeah. That obviously explains human beings. We're just becoming more simple as evolution <laughs> progresses. Mantis shrimps, they do have these, the ones that live at the surface have these 12 spectral sensitivities. As I mentioned already, you know, we've got red, green, and blue RGB. That's perfectly adequate for seeing most colors on Earth. And birds extend that to four, and that allows them to see into the deeper into the UV, the ultraviolet. And, you know, you can show theoretically that four really is pretty much what you need. So stomatopods, why do they need 12? Well, they seem to encode color differently. They seem to do everything differently. They're just different little animals that want to be different. That's a very scientific explanation there, as you can tell. Yeah, that's it. Done, nailed it. Different. <laughs> there. But then, yeah, as you say, it's the, the other end of the spectrum, the, the cephalopods that have this superb camouflage ability, completely colorblind. So how do they do it? And this includes things like you no know, giant squid, which we could argue are, are pretty deep sea or at least mesopelagic, and other cephalopods that live in the deep. They have this single visual pigment, but then the cephalopods that live on the surface have a single visual pigment, despite the fact that they have available to them the full spectrum of light, and despite the fact that they put on body colors and shades and texture, that allows them to disappear instantly. So how do they do that? Now, I, I played a mean trick on cuttlefish in Plymouth once with a, a colleague, John Messenger, and between visits to the pub, we decided to put cuttlefish on aquarium gravel. So we went to an aquarium shop and, and bought this weird coloured gravel that you can buy to make your aquarium look a bit more attractive. So we bought yeah. bright red gravel and we bought bright yellow gravel and we bought bright blue gravel. And we took the cuttlefish out of their natural murky green habitat and put them on bright yellow gravel. First thing, they don't go bright yellow. So they're not just matching a single color. They don't go bright blue. But what do they do? And if you actually mix bright blue and bright yellow gravel and take a photograph with a black and white camera, black and white camera only has a single spectral channel, you can't tell the difference between blue and yellow anymore. And this is exactly what happens to the cuttlefish. So you put them on bright yellow and blue gravel and they put on a, a body shade, which is just even all over. They don't try and match the texture. Huh. So what that tells us is that they're not, they're not seeing the color contrast that we can. So they're not like us. They can't see that contrast. They believe they're on an even gray shade. So we fool them into doing the wrong thing with their body colors. Now, it still leaves the question of how the octopus, I mean, yeah. Goodness gracious, how do they do that? Um, and it's basically through evolution. So octopus and cuttlefish are superb at matching the intensity, the overall pattern that's provided by the intensity, and to some extent, the texture, so they can raise their body skin to look like seaweed and stuff. And they do those three things, but they don't do color. And all they have to do is recognize that the bottom of the ocean is usually kind of green and brown. You know, it's not usually bright blue and bright yellow. Uh, unless you've got mean experimenters playing with your with your head. Um, so all they have to do is put on a sort of greeny, browny background colour, and they don't need to worry about not seeing it because they disappear. Ah, I always thought they were actually mimicking it. They were, they're just going for what they think it should be. They just kind of do it because that's what evolution tells them the ocean yeah. floor looks like. So are deep sea animals doing anything different in the brains? Are their brains evolved in any particular way to, to process this type of information? And the thing that I remember is, is Ron Douglas, who you mentioned earlier, 
I was on a trip with him. Someone had pulled up a midwater trawl and in it there was a little octopus in there and it was a little juvenile. And at that point it was pretty much transparent except it had one eye on the end of one arm and one eye on the end of the other arm. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting at dinner listening to Ron and, and the likes of Jochen Wagner and so on, arguing about what would happen if you turned one eye to look into the other eye and how your brain would even try and process that. So, you know, what's going on in the brain department? I mean, good question. And well, actually, we've just started a PhD student here in Australia, and his job is going to be looking even harder into deep sea fish brains and to try and answer your question. So you know, give him an interview in five years' time and he'll give a, a much better answer than I'm about to give. The brains are not that different. They're, again, similar to those of surface living fish. They don't have the bits that need to process colour, you know, unless you're a weird deep sea fish that could process colour. And you know, we've recently described one that has, I think it's now 50 visual pigments. It's ridiculous. Anyway, cut back to brains. They're not that dissimilar. They can become simplified for certain areas that don't need as much light as the surface dwellers. Um, but they have all the different, you know, the metallencephalon, diencephalon, to use the fancy terms. The eyes go to the same sort of area of the brain to allow the brain to interpret images. But I'm kind of arm-waving, as you can tell. Really, the real answer is, although there's overall similarities, we just don't know. And this is the question that this student is going to try and tease apart. You know, what really are those differences and what do they mean for the animal? All right. Another question. Of all the stuff that you've done, what is the one animal that sticks out for you as being something really quite special? You know, of course, I'm going to say everything in the deep sea is amazing. Correct. For me, (laughs) and this is going to go right off off subject, the most amazing thing I've personally discovered in the the deep sea are adaptations for the the fish to to hear with. I work on, on hearing and the lateral line. But, you know, I have worked alongside the people that have made these amazing discoveries about red bioluminescence. And, you know, Edie Widow might have talked a bit about that. People tend to think of bioluminescence as being blue or green, but it actually covers much of the spectrum. And you've got these animals that have red bioluminescence, and they've got to adapt their eyes to see it. So the visual systems that these animals are using to see, you know, matches the light that they can produce. But then you do have these exceptions there, this ridiculous fish, Doretmus. It turns out it's got like 50 rhodopsins. Why do they do that? We just don't know. But it's, yeah, for me, it's the it's the exceptions. It's the weird things which, which really stick out. What sort of colours did all those pigments cover? Were they all quite clustered or were there some surprising ones? It's a cluster around blue-green. And, you know, being a rhodopsin, it's a rod-based pigment, visual pigment, and they tend to be in the middle of the spectrum, which is going to be the best for detecting light. Uh, underwater. It's one of these things where the deeper you look, the more mysteries you Mm -hmm. find. My advice to any young scientist is if you make a discovery, publish it and then do something else. Because if you keep working on that subject, you'll find that your discovery was wrong. And I've spent most of my I've spent most of my scientific career being wrong. You know, I look back to some of my early papers and I think, oh dear, that was wrong. Joking aside, that's how science progresses. You know, you do the best with what yeah. you've got at the time, and then you go, well, that's what I think. And then later you go, oh, hang on, that was probably wrong. It just gets more and more correct rather than an absolute. Absolutely, it gets. That's a very nice way to put it, Tom. I'm, I'm becoming more and more correct as I get older. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting closer to perfection. Politically, maybe not, but yes, exactly, closer to perfection. The other thing I wanted to talk to you as well, if if, if you don't mind, I, I, something's really interesting about you is you're a thoroughbred marine scientist, and that your father was 
Oh, yeah. Her Majesty's Curator of Fish at the British Museum of Natural History. He's quite, a, yeah. quite the big cheese back in the day. That's your father. He was one of the deep sea experts of the day. So he did other fish. You know. If Her Majesty wanted to know what fish this was on her plate, she would um, phone Freddie Marshall and say, excuse me, Freddie, could you tell me what I'm about to eat? Right. I don't think this ever happened, but theoretically she could have done. Um, yeah. But no, he wrote some quite famous books on the deep sea. And Absolutely. Still, still in circulation today. I mean, you and I have used them. Um, when we go on yeah. expeditions, we go, oh, what did the book say about this? And we look up you know, what my dad said. And so it's pretty cool, you know, his books in my collection. And, and your mother was the illustrator, right? Yeah, absolutely. So family affair. So she did all the superb color illustrations and black and white drawings of deep sea creatures while dad you know, talked about them in the book. It's been in the family. Um, I remember going to the British Museum of Natural History and being allowed to poke the coelacanth as it bobbed up and down in its vat of formalin. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a bit bad for you, that stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something sunk in, a bit of formalin perhaps. And yeah, I followed in his footsteps. I did. You know, I tried to steer clear of the deep sea, but it's just so fascinating that you get drawn back to it. And it is nice to you know, follow a bit of a family legacy there, but then um, most of my work's yeah. been you know, on the surface, trying to avoid that. Is there going to be a third generation of marshals? Do we need to... Watch out. If we're going to talk the sun line, has chosen music. He's a very good musician. He's aiming to be a classical composer. Anyone who likes Spotify has to immediately look up We Build Spaceships. They're a fantastic rock band that he's in. And he plays jazz. So he's, he's turning into a really good musician. Yeah, he's just avoided the whole fish and science and smelly formalin side of things very wisely. <laughs> talk about of smelly stuff. You once told me that you twice lived underwater for quite some time in the Aquarius yeah. laboratory and you told me some horrific stories. I was lucky because this, this thing doesn't, well, lucky? I'm going to that the right word. Um, this thing doesn't exist anymore. The, but the Aquarius habitat was basically an underwater caravan uh, on the Florida Keys. And, you know, lucky marine biologists could go and spend 10 days underwater. That doesn't mean you have to be in the water for 10 days. Uh, you can duck up into this caravan, which was held at about 25 metres. Uh, so you can duck up into, you know, into dry-ish air um, and dry off-ish. So, you know, in the 70s, if you remember Jacques Cousteau and the, the French, they were going to build underwater cities where... His son is doing that right now, the next generation, which immediately made me think of your stories. <laughs> it's not going to work because you go mouldy. Now, humans are not adapted to being that damp that often. And you do start growing fungus. It's not pleasant. Then you just describe it once as like having all over body trench food. Essentially, yeah. Athletes, everything. Yeah, it, and when I came up, I got what's called a skin bend. So I got slightly bent, not not in the bad way, and it you know, affected my joints and nervous system. Um, but I got a skin bend, which meant that a lot of the skin of my hands and feet just fell off all in one go. Um, oh. So my son had this sort of foot pad, which just peeled off, which was very unpleasant. But I dried it out and kept it in my wallet for a bit, but I gave it to a girlfriend. She was very happy with my, my, with my foot um, parchment, that sort of thing. Did anyone tell you about this before you went in? Did anyone say, by the way, in 10 days' time, your, the skin from your hands and feet is going to fall off? There was a few hints in that direction. But they didn't want to spoil the surprise. No, exactly. It would have just taken, <laughs> taken away the pleasure of peeling off that single layer of skin in one go. It was fantastic. But yeah, it's it's not a place that humans are ever going to... It's, yeah, it's like space, this idea. I'm going to go live in space. No, you're not. Um, space is very hostile. Underwater is a very hostile environment. Yeah, the thing is, you're not living in space. You're not living underwater. You're living in tin cans. Yeah, and it's a tin can which is damp. I mean, I definitely felt better when I was out in the water. And you know, the good thing about the habitat was that you could spend eight hours a day out in the water, and you just start thinking like a fish, and the fish sort of ignore you because they go, "Oh, there's that smelly thing that popped out of the tin can over there," and I'll just ignore it. 
So they do. They don't always ignore you, though, do you? It's what an activity they like. <laughs> well, activity they would wait oh, for yes, you. I know exactly where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, the angelfish, the coprophages, so call them. Maybe we should just leave it there, and people can look look that up. What is a coprophage? Uh, but yeah, no, there's and the, you know the sharks would, would come by, and you go, oh, the shark. But it was a great experience, great privilege to you know live amongst the fishies and the other animals for um, that amount of time. So yeah, it was fantastic. Apart from the smell, you know, with the the stoplight loose jaw and the the red bioluminescence. Do you think we would have noticed its visual differences if we hadn't had the the bioluminescence as a clue? Because coming back to the fluorescence thing, I, I'm just wondering if if there could be a communication channel between the same species, basically. I'm thinking of like coordinating reproduction and things like that. Could there be a private color channel based on fluorescing from bioluminescent origin? And it's an interesting question to ask, you know, if you need blue light, and blue light is often used to excite fluorescence, and there's animals that produce blue light. You know, are these animals that have blue headlights actually looking for fluorescent things? And it turns out that bioluminescent organs, as you just alluded to, do fluoresce. So is it possible they can spot each other or they can spot things they might want to eat uh, using their blue headlamps? And that's a really good question. And we know so little about what's going on in terms of bioluminescent communication because we don't spend enough time there. We don't We don't live underwater. As you said earlier, we, we wouldn't have learned about the red visual system of the dragonfish, etc., that use red light to hunt for prey, apparently. But do they also use red light for reproduction? I mean, after all, humans have red light zones, and that's maybe there's a, there's a common evolutionary... <laughs> maybe that's evolutionary common there. You know, the red light is needed for reproduction. We should get off that subject quickly. Abandon, abandon. <laughs> as you mentioned it's like is that a little flash close or is that a big flash far away and in terms of selective pressure evolutionary pressure like that's an important question for your survival are there any systems for ranging at all like i'm I'm thinking about that one with loads of pigments around still the blue could you use a little bit of attenuation to gauge the distance of bioluminescence or is it just too variable in its origin yeah the fish do have two eyes and you know, two eyes can be used to judge distance that's how we do it so you know mm. binocular vision allows you to judge distance instead of an instant flash in the distance that's really difficult you really need you know if we're judging distance or something we're focusing on it we're looking at it all the time and you know maybe we're reaching out to grab it yeah i mean maybe it's correlated with eye size and you may remember this nice paper a few years ago by eric warrant and dan eric nielsen who sort of explained why giant squid eyes are so big you know here is the biggest eye in the world the size of a dinner plate and the reason they are so big is because they do need to see distant bioluminescence coming at them fast and what this is is a whale that's charging towards them, wanting to eat the giant squid. So sperm whales eat giant squid. And if you've got a really big eye, it's more sensitive. And maybe that sensitivity is correlated with how far you can see into the distance and how far away you can see bioluminescence. Even in their paper, they just went, yeah, maybe, no, this is an idea. One of those ideas you throw out there and go, hmm, okay. There's no commitment anymore, you know? People just need to commit to it. Just come up with a good idea and say it's right. Exactly. We need a little bit more confidence. Germanic commitment. Yeah, this is the way it is, and that's it. But yes, we're, we're too polite these days, um, Alan. We just we go, oh, possibly. Yeah. You know, we're too English about it. Possibly this, or possibly that. For goodness sake, make your mind up. <laughs> I've wondered as well with the brief flashes. They're so sensitive, or maybe the enzymes to sort of reset the pigment are a little bit sluggish. So similar to like when we get caught by a camera flash, even though the camera flash is a fraction of a second, it lingers in our visual field. And I wonder if they have a 
they have almost a shutter style. They don't miss it, basically. They have an after image that they can maybe interrogate a bit longer to figure out where that was. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's possible. And there's even the possibility that some animals, you know, those that live on the sea floor in the abysmal trenches that you both study, they might even be able to, to sit there and collect light over a long period of time, you know, almost photon count. Like it building a heat map. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's um, yeah, people have suggested that even frogs do that. So, you know, a deep sea fish sitting really still might be able to slowly over a long period build up a, an impression of something going on over there and then move in that direction. So very sort of slow vision rather than the kind of vision that we're used to, which is the thing goes off and we look at it. Um, you know, life in the deep sea is very slow. Everything moves very slowly. Metabolism is very slow. Um, some of the fish there only eat twice a year and then just sort of sit there waiting for something slow to happen. A deep sea lizard fish that's been sat still for four months seeing a very slow moving fish moving towards it, not as pinpoints of bioluminescence, but as a vapor trail. Because I've often wondered how they can sit still for so long, but then go off like a rocket. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a, a metabolic sort of ramping up. You know, they see that something's approaching and so they start to activate everything. They get the muscles ready and it's it's readying the trap, basically. All the wheels are spinning inside and you don't really see it until then you're yep. gone. Um, I mean, yeah, we couldn't do that. If we sit still, especially at my age, if you sit still for too long and you get up, it's like, oh, my goodness, it's all creaky. Um, it's very difficult to go from nothing to something, especially if you've sat still for two weeks. So, yes, there, yeah. there are some secrets there. There are some good questions. It's a very good question. I should write these down. Yeah, you should. <laughs> how, do, how do animals do that? I did have colleagues that tried to measure metabolisms of deep sea animals, but generally they just came out with the answer that it's slow. Yeah, yeah, it's just just less than other things. Yeah, <laughs> that's been fascinating, Justin. Thank you very much for your time, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Alan and Tom. It's been great to talk to you about you know things that I love, deep sea vision. I've certainly learned something. I hope you have too. There's another few things that I'm coming across at the moment in my own endeavours along the lines of what you were saying about fluorescence, that just because you've witnessed something doesn't mean to say it's relevant. Mm. I like that. You know, a fish could be capable of fluorescence, or like I was saying, that a bacteria might respond to infrared light, but it doesn't mean to say that it's of any significance to the animal whatsoever. It might just be a happy accident, but we're making it a big deal. I liked his black lighting clubs analogy, like the UV lighting clubs. It's like some people have tattoos and face paint and clothes that are designed to react with yeah. the black light and look really cool, but also our teeth fluoresce. And that's yeah. just incidental. That just is a, is a property of the chemicals. Yeah. You almost have to be careful reading too much into it. Well, I was just thinking that recently because we're, we're looking at some of the, the little amphipods in the trenches and stuff like that. And they obviously thrive at the very, very deepest points, which is fair enough. They've just evolved to do that. But then quite often when we pull the lander off the bottom, you'll see the amphipods still eating and still holding on for three or 4,000 meters off the bottom. Mm. And then they all suddenly drop off. And you sort of thinking and go, well, why, why would they have evolved the capacity to ascend to the surface at 50 meters a minute, <laughs> right? Because that's the, it's just, why would you be able to survive that? Because it would never happen in real life. And it does seem a hard point when they all fall off. Yeah. It, it wasn't like one falls off and then another one falls off and it's like the speed of it rushing up. Yeah. It reached this weird threshold at like 4,000 meters from where we got them that they all fell off at once. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I'm starting to think that maybe their extreme pressure tolerance is not a deliberate act of evolution. It's maybe just a happy accident from something else. Cope with something else that's happened to make them particularly pressure hardy. Because mm. why would you invest evolutionary energy into developing a strategy that you would never come across? Similar to the fluorescence thing. There's a few animals that overshoot it as well. We've been trying to figure that out. Why are some capable of going to pressures that don't exist on Earth? Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, it is probably incidental based on other properties. Yeah. Oh, still lots to do. Still well, lots I mean, to think about. I'm actually wondering what else is a complete load of nonsense. <laughs> or just correlation. You know, it's, correlation is not causation. Yeah. It's fascinating. Though. I think I think the octopus thing really fascinating as well. They've got an animal which is so heavily associated with some of the most abstract and bizarre displays of pattern and colour in the animal kingdom and it has no idea. <laughs> I, think that, yeah. I love that. It's like brilliant. based on assumption. It's like, oh, this is probably sand. It's going to be around these hues. But yeah, I don't fancy going to one of these underwater habitats. So not that I think I'd ever go there, but the, the, the idea of being able to spend so much time damp. scuba diving is worth peeling your hands and feet off at the end <laughs> and then keeping your foot in a wallet. I, uh, and then giving it to a girlfriend. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it is kind of romantic if you're weird. We should have followed up with, is that girlfriend now your wife? Is she not? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the answer is, does this person still have your foot skin? Yeah. <laughs> Full body athlete's foot. Oh, yuck. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, I'm Claudia. I'm a university student from Sydney, and I wanted to thank you for your wonderful podcast and ask you a question about snailfish. How did they get their name? I know they have a sucker on the underside of their bodies, but what is it used for? And is it the only reason for their name? I shall be waiting in anticipation for your slimely answer. Thank you. They're a super successful family. Like the Kardashians. Like the, like the Kardashians. Snailfish, <laughs> the, the Leparidae. <laughs> are found from like the intertidal, you can find them in rock pools, to being the sort of deepest living fish, at least that we currently know about. They have adapted their pelvic fins into a little sucking disc. Another family that do this are uh, lump suckers. They're popular online. You'll see lots of very cute videos of baby lump suckers. Lots of character in those fish. They're lovely. Um, so they developed a little sucking disc that lets them hold on to smooth rocks and to the fronds of kelp and seaweed. Interesting little tangent, because they've lost a pair of fins, they have taken their pectoral fins, which are like the arm fins, and split them into two lobes. So basically they've split another fin so that it works like the pelvic fins used to work because they've lost that set of fins. But anyway, they use this little sucking disc. The smaller intertidal ones tend to stick to the fronds of kelp. And when they're holding on there, they tend to curl their little body around and they look like a little snail. And that is where the snailfish name comes from. So would you rather be a snailfish or a lump sucker? There's a lot of charm to the lump suckers, but the more I look into them, the more I think I'd rather be a Hadal snailfish. I think it's all right. I think it's an all right life. They're really social. They're not food limited. I think occasionally they all get smothered and killed, but... <laughs> In between that, it's like the last days of Rome. Yeah, during a seismic event, like you know, it must be a little bit grim. But yeah, all right, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd prefer to be a lump sucker. But would you personal just because you like the name? You basically yeah. Yeah. No, I just think snailfish. You know, I've worked on snailfish a lot. I've spent a great deal of my career looking at the snailfish, and I, they're just so rubbish. I mean, it's impressive what they are and what they do, and it's great fun sort of researching them. But I mean, if if I were to be a fish, I'd be like, nah. It's just so flimsy and, and, and 
fragile and it's goofy looking and it's got really beady little eyes and it's perfectly flimsy though the suckers on the deep water ones are kind of like almost regressing i mean they don't look like they yeah. can suck on anything no i don't think they're using them no it's weird that they're still quite extensive they're still quite large yeah. but a lot of the musculature has faded away there are other genera within the family that have completely lost their suckers so yeah it's obviously like a, an ancestral form and then some some more modern mm. ones are starting to lose them i've never heard an animal scream like a snailfish though it's amazing. <laughs> Don't scream. <laughs> After that, if anyone needs cheering up, just Google baby lump suckers and they're adorable. I heard from another listener. Hello, if you're listening. Kate is a dog groomer from Colorado, US. And she said that she happened upon the podcast while looking for some deep sea scary creature stories, knew absolutely nothing about the deep sea going in and didn't even really like water. Like this was the whole point of starting the show. Like she fancied a little bit of scary stories and a little bit of deep sea monstrosities and then stumbled upon us and... Yeah, now she's enjoying learning about actual deep sea stuff. Does she listen to us while she's grooming the dogs? That's what I was thinking. Is is she trimming something that looks like a cloud with button eyes? Just in case she is, could you insert some really loud barking Alsatian noises into this episode? <laughs> you want to terrify the floofy thing? Yeah. I'm not sure you've got the right nurturing attitude towards our listeners. No, no I'm not. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just curious to know whether you can sonically weaponize a podcast. <laughs> nice. So she was exactly the sort of person we had in mind when we started doing the show so that people like her could access like real deep sea science. So she went on to say, in your first episode, you guys shut down the idea that we know more about Mars. She was listening to the statistics ranted out and was shocked and very interested and saying about the animals the more she listens. I think we've got a convert. So uh, excellent. Hi, Kate. Welcome aboard. Hi. And you know what's coming. She especially likes Don. So there it is. Does anyone like us? No, it's not come up. Every time anyone's ever said, I really like dot, 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 it's always Don. Of course it's Don. He's like the Harry Styles of this boy band. <laughs> Good reference, mate. I know. So she's been sharing some deep sea facts with her fellow dog groomers. There might even be some dogs strolling around Colorado knowing surprisingly amount of detail about the deep sea. <laughs> Just furiously barking at someone because they said we know more about the moon. Yeah. What's got into him? He wants you to stop harking on about the moon, that's all. Is it too much to ask? It actually came up again. I honestly wish when we started this podcast I had a little book. I could take a note of every time I've seen that written or said. It would yeah. be fascinating because it's, it's, it is relentless. It was even just the other day, it was a credible, credible deep sea scientist in the news. One of the things she was like, oh yeah, yeah you know, because this is really important because, you know, we know more about the surface of that. And you're like, really? And it's just, it just won't go away. I think we're fighting a lost cause here. I think we'd be better putting our efforts into something else. I, I've seen the tide turning, both on this and the blobfish. I think people like to be right on the internet. So now I'm seeing people, whenever anyone says that, I'm seeing smug people in the comments. Well done, smug people, by the way. You're, you're leading the charge. Yeah. You know, actually, it doesn't look like that in life. Actually, that's a bit of a misnomer. Good. So I'm, I'm, liking, I'm liking seeing a little bit of pushback on that. It's probably too vague, but We Know More About the Moon would have been a great title for the show. Yeah. Hello, this is explorer oceanographer Don Walsh. And the subject for today's program is windows in the sea. When using manned or unmanned submersibles, you need to be able to see outside. That's kind of a given, isn't it? So windows are needed whether the eyeball inside is human or the lens of a camera. But these windows or viewports are also pressure boundaries where the observer inside is at atmospheric pressure and outside it's at higher pressures that vary with depth in the sea. It's an engineering challenge. The viewport material needs to be strong, so the trick is to have something that's also 
transparent. For over two centuries, glass was the logical choice. In fact, the only choice. A major underwater use for glass was faceplates for diver helmets, and this was fine for shallower depths, generally less than 200 feet, where the pressure differential between inside and outside was relatively small. From an engineering point of view, glass is very strong. That's the theory. But there are serious problems with it. It is unpredictable. This is mainly due to the fact that it loses strength when it is notched and then can fail without warning. I can give you an example that we have all experienced, and that is cutting a piece of glass for a picture frame. You don't cut the glass with scissors or some kind of wire cutters. The glass cutter is a scribe. You make a scratch across the piece of glass, the desired measurement, and then you just tap the glass very slightly, and it breaks along that scratch line. And that's called a stress concentrator. Well, it's not very good for a uh, window in the sea if somebody happens to scratch it in some way, now you've got a stress concentrator and it could fail without warning and catastrophically. But it was all we had until the 1920s. And that was when another stronger material was developed. It was called fused quartz, a transparent material made from very pure silica. By the late 1920s, General Electric was able to produce larger quartz glass viewports. Initially, the quartz was used for crystals in radio sets where the pieces of glass or crystal, if you will, were not very big. But it was General Electric's development in the late 1920s where you could make viewports out of this material. They were difficult to manufacture, very difficult, in fact, and harder to fabricate, but were much, much stronger than conventional glass. But fused quartz had some of the same limitations, namely the problem of stress concentrations. And again, you could get uh, sudden failures. In short, it was tricky. But at Bermuda in the early 1930s, Dr. William Beebe planned deep diving operations with his bathysphere. It was a two-person manned submersible that was lowered on a cable into the sea from a surface ship, of course. For his windows, he used three three-inch thick fused quartz discs. He bought seven of them from GE, and it's a good thing he had spares because four of them were destroyed during manufacture or installation. Nevertheless, with these windows, he bravely got to 3,028 feet in 1935. Dr. Beebe was indeed the first hydronaut. The last use of quartz glass in a submersible was by Beebe's partner, Otis Barton. In 1949, he dove his new design, the two-person benthoscope, to 4,500 feet. However, by then, fused quartz had been eclipsed by a newer and safer material called plexiglass. It was invented in 1933 by the Roman Haas Company in Germany. And it's too bad Barton was unaware of that because he would add a lot safer viewports for his sub. It's not a glass. It's a plastic material. That means that it can flow under pressure, not like water, but very slowly adjust to pressure changes and in that way avoid any stress concentrations. And it can also resist surficial damage. It's really impervious to surficial damage. You could actually take a knife or sandpaper and scratch it and do all kinds of things to it without any loss of strength. That's a marvelous material. In the late 1930s, plexiglass really made it possible for inventor Auguste Picard to begin design and construction of bathyscaph manned submersibles, which had unlimited depth capabilities. Glass or fused quartz could never have met this challenge. In 1960, the two seven-inch thick acrylic viewports on the bathyscaph Trieste worked perfectly on a dive to a depth of nearly seven miles. There, the outside pressure was an astounding eight tons per square inch. By the 1970s, hundreds of manned and unmanned submersibles had been put into service worldwide. 
all used plastic viewports. Well, while acrylic viewports were the beginning, it did not take long for entire submersible hulls to be constructed of massive acrylics, where the hull is essentially one big window. So inside, you are literally sitting in a hole in the ocean. We humorously call this experience being inside a people bowl. That is, you're in the bowl and the fish are looking at you from the outside. These were relatively shallow diving submersibles because at the time it was believed that the depth limit for acrylic hulls would be about 4,000 feet, where the outside pressure was about 1,800 pounds per square inch. In the mid-1980s, there was a related new development. This was the tourist submarine, which you can relate to as I'll get to in a moment. They could carry up to 64 passengers on dives to depths not much greater than 100 feet. But you don't need to go more than 100 feet because at 100 feet, you begin to lose all the color definition in the ocean. And one of the things that the operators of the tourist subs do is mark your hand with a something like red lipstick. It's nice and red when you submerge. By the time you get to 100 feet, it looks perfectly black because all the red color has been extinguished. So 100 feet is a, is a good depth for a great experience. So now ordinary people without any diving skills had their own window inside the sea. These subs were fitted with more than 22 large acrylic windows and also a large hemispherical one in the front, half dome, if you will, for the pilot. While the typical tourist sub dive was relatively shallow and brief, maybe an hour, it was the large plastic windows that made it a special experience for passengers. Were they popular? Well, here's an example. The largest tourist company in this business is Canada's Atlantis Submarines. Founded in 1985, they have safely carried more than 12 million tourists into the depths. 12 million, think of that. No one injured. That's more than all the crews of all the military submarines that ever existed. It's a very, very comfortable and safe experience for the tourist. Today, advances in technology permit construction of acrylic hulls rated to a depth of 13,000 feet or about 6,000 PSI. So we've come a long way over the years in the knowledge of acrylic plastic and how to make better and stronger materials. Also, the state-of-the-art for acrylic viewports is now about eight inches thick for full ocean depth ratings of to, say, 36,000 feet, but the pressure is eight tons per square inch. Well, I hope some of you can join the millions of us, because I've done a lot of it, who have had the experience of a tourist submarine dive. Believe me, it's a special thrill to be inside the ocean while looking through your personal window in the sea. So until next time, think deep and thanks for listening. Interesting, I found out the other day that you know, we wrote that paper about why people don't care about the deep sea and we published it in this IC Journal of Marine Science and I'll save this for another podcast if it gets to print, but somebody had written a, a reply to it and that people do care about the deep sea. So we had to write a comment back and it's not none of us published yet and it's a little bit weird. This is proper academic arguing. Well, this is what happens because academics are a bit weird. If they, if they see a paper they don't like, rather than just calling you up or emailing you and saying, uh, you know, can we talk about this? They will just writing a critique of your paper and then you have to write back. That's the system though, because then that means the whole community is part of that debate. But it does. It can feel strange. So anyway, so that's that's going to come out fairly soon. But in doing all that, that paper where we talked about the the moon analogies and the blobfish and the Tommyknockers, I believe, are even in that one as well. There's the only scientific Jeez. paper I've written that references Star Wars so far. Well, the editor told me it's been uh, viewed or downloaded five and a half thousand times. That's a lot. It's amazing. And we we've heard as well that it's used in like tutorial sessions with undergraduates. It's used as like a discussion piece, which was a, a, absolutely in, the intention. You don't you don't have to agree. It's just a jumping off point to yeah. talk. About about these things yeah it's just to stimulate conversation and there's going to be more of it soon because we've had to uh, respond to some interesting new points to be raised <laughs> it's always fun to cite pixar <laughs>
<laughs> I know, I know. Those two papers combined could be so funny if we were allowed to write an after dark version of it, you know, rather than for a scientific journal. If we actually said yeah. what we wanted to say and how we would normally explain it, it would be really funny. If only we had another medium with which we could share things in a slightly more lighthearted way. I'll have to think about well, that. We don't know. No, we don't. I hope no one's recording these calls. These are just for us. We should do a, a little special. Ah, uh, maybe. See what comes of it. The same as every other podcast I said, you've got your shirt off. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> is that what makes it after dark? Yeah. It makes the, the adult shirts version. Off. Yeah. Just taps <laughs> off, everyone. You might not be on the next episode. We'll see what comes of all that. Off an adventure. I'll try and send you some some interesting anecdotes or updates and let you know how it's going. Yeah, quite looking forward to it. Definitely. Sounds like a really good one. The whole triple junction and the whole like multiple trenches joining why are things in one trench and not the other. The backstory to this one is, is in 2011. Myself and my Japanese mate at the time were going out to, to do a particular study based on the Japanese snailfish and various amphipods things. And while we were loading the truck, the biggest earthquake in recent history rocked us something rotten and we all got... It's a long, complicated story. Well, maybe one day on the podcast we'll talk about that, but uh, it wasn't pretty and the nuclear power station blew up and all the rest of it and da 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 And then, of course, scientifically, we never got out and now, what are we now? 11 years later, uh, we're going and we're going to finish it. We're going to finish what we started. Uh, only this time, we've also got a submarine as well. So, very cool. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. We'll deep see you next time and we abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Who's that calling at this time of day? It's probably the, it's probably the, the dog groomer in Colorado. Oh, this is what, it's the dog groomer from Colorado phoning up to complain about the dog noise you haven't put in yet because for some reason the entire timeline is all fractured and been put back together the wrong way. So that's her complaining about what you're about to do. And that, yeah, because we, we had the interview before we recorded the, yeah. the episode. So yeah, yeah. T- time's all wibbly wobbly. Yeah, right if you now. pick that up, you'll be talking to the dog groomer in Colorado. <laughs> or me as a child. <laughs> oh that'd be weird mm, right. well I'm glad that's over <laughs> I don't like it when the outside world comes in I like to pretend there's no one else yeah. but already getting complaints I haven't even published yet yeah that's what today that's our phone and up saying oi what are you doing <laughs> my little fluffy cloud went mental <laughs> oh dear